By late December of 1864, dark waters were closing over the Confederacy. Back in August, David Farragut's fleet successfully bottled up Mobile Bay. Two months later, up in the Shenandoah, Federal victory at Cedar Creek opened the valley to fire and desolation. In November, William Sherman marched his army across Georgia, and as he entered Savannah in December, envisioned a similar path of destruction north through the Carolinas. That same month, over in Tennessee, George Thomas won a decisive victory at Nashville, and in Virginia, U.S. Grant continued to pin down Lee's army at Petersburg. Though the noose was being tightened round the neck of the Confederacy, there was still one major supply line and portal from which the shrinking Confederacy could count on supplies from the outside world. That railroad line, so vitally important, Robert E. Lee tabbed it the lifeline of the Confederacy. It ran from Petersburg south to Weldon, North Carolina, and then down to the port city of Wilmington. This is the story of the massive fort that protected that city, that lifeline, Fort Fisher, the Gibraltar of the Confederacy. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. The earthen monster that was Fort Fisher was built to emulate Sevastopol, Russia's imposing Malakoff Tower, a tower that had served as a Russian fortress during the Crimean War. The Confederacy's replica took its name from the 6th North Carolina's Colonel Charles F. Fisher, who was killed at First Manassas. Made of sand and not of brick and mortar, which rifled artillery could riddle, the installation set 20 miles down the Cape Fear from vitally important Wilmington, North Carolina. Its earthen walls were 30 feet high, 25 feet thick at their base, and tapered to 8 feet at the top. Built largely by slave labor, they were bolstered with heavy timbers and covered with sod. The fort's land face stretched for one half mile and was dotted with 15 traverses or mounds. Bristling with 12-foot-high batteries, its sea face stretched just over a mile, then turned left at a right angle, and the land face then ran west the aforementioned half-mile, almost reaching the Cape Fear River. In front of the land face, there was a wooden palisade, and the ground before, hundreds of mines to protect against infantry assault from out of the north. They could be detonated by a primitive battery from inside the fort. The fort's armament, 169 cannon, of which 44 were heavy guns. Separating the gun platforms, a total of 30 thick mound-like earthen traverses 15 feet higher than the parapet. Those traverses ensured that if one gun was hit, adjoining ones were sheltered. Beneath many of them, bomb-proofs, and black powder magazines. 
At the southern end of the sea face, the cone-shaped mound battery, which rose 60 feet above the beach. Atop, two large guns trained on New Inlet, the door through which ships could pass from the Atlantic to the Cape Fear. And if all this was not enough, about a mile south of the mound battery, Battery Buchanan, which guarded the very tip of what, since the war, was called Confederate Point. Inside, Fisher was along with bomb-proofs and magazines that held 13,000 pounds of black powder. There was an infirmary, mess, and telegraph station. Indeed, Fort Fisher was a monster, and Union officers knew it to be so. Yet the thinking was perhaps a joint Army-Navy expedition could take it. If Fisher fell, then so would less formidable Forts Caswell, Johnson, and Anderson that lined the Cape Fear upriver. Federal attacks certainly worried Fort Fisher's 29-year-old affable commander, Colonel William Lamb. Born into privilege in 1835 in Norfolk, Lamb at 19 graduated Phi Beta Kappa from William and Mary, and though he acquired his law degree, he was too young to practice. His father bought half-interest in a Norfolk newspaper, the Southern Argus, and made his son editor. When war came, the young Lamb became a major in the 6th Virginia Infantry and was ordered to Wilmington to be the chief quartermaster of the District of Cape Fear. He rose through the ranks and at 26 was given command of Fort Fisher. He immediately began to turn Fisher into a Gibraltar, his effort pleased the commander of the Wilmington and Cape Fear region, Major General William Henry Chase Whiting, who had graduated first in his class at West Point, 1845. His academic record was so remarkable that it was not until 1903 when it was topped by a cadet named Douglas MacArthur. Though regarded as perhaps the best engineer in the South, Whiting, early in the war, became embroiled in a feud with Jefferson Davis, and that, as well as rumors of excessive drinking, poisoned his advancement. Yet, at the insistence of Robert E. Lee in November of 1862, Whiting was given command of Wilmington and the Cape Fear District. And we should introduce another who, after it was learned that there were federal designs to reduce Fort Fisher, was ordered to supersede Whiting. Full General Braxton Bragg arrived by train from Richmond on Saturday, October the 22nd, 1864, and though he took command of the department, left Whiting in command of the military district. Bragg, a native North Carolinian, was simply put, an enigma. Fifth in his West Point class of 1837, he suffered from migraines, chronic indigestion, seemed to quarrel with everyone. His reputation was so bad that when the Richmond Examiner learned of his reassignment to the Cape Fear, the paper ran a headline that read, Goodbye, Wilmington. Fully aware that Lee desperately needed Wilmington open to the outside world, and Fort Fisher ensured just that, Lincoln's Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, wrote on August the 30th, 1864, Something must be done to close the entrance to Cape Fear River and port of Wilmington. 
Could we seize the forts at the entrance of Cape Fear and close the illicit traffic, it would be almost as important as the capture of Richmond on the fate of the rebels. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief U.S. Grant agreed and suggested that it should be a joint effort by the Army and Navy. Command of the Navy contingent was offered to David Farragut. However, the 63-year-old Vice Admiral declined on account of exhaustion and poor health. When he did, command fell to Farragut's boastful and ambitious foster brother. Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter, who at 51 had a career that was spotty at best. Recently, he had been most unimpressive in Louisiana's Red River campaign, but at that moment proved to be the boldest and most experienced naval officer available. He did have the loyalty and respect from Jack Tars and subordinate officers, but graded terribly on superiors. Navy Secretary Wells thought him a gas bag and once said, Porter had no hesitation in trampling down a brother officer if it would benefit him. To lead the Army contingent of seven to 8,000, Grant appointed 29-year-old Major General Godfrey Weitzel. But another gas bag, Major General Benjamin Butler, pulled rank. He reluctantly was given command. At 46, Butler was balding, fat, sagging, puffy, contentious, and unreliable. A political general. He was a Democrat. At their national convention in 1860, he voted 57 times to nominate Jefferson Davis for president. Back in 1862, and in command of federally occupied New Orleans, he enraged Southerners with his so-called woman's order. That any woman insulting or showing contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States should be, quote, treated as a woman of the town plying her avocation, end quote. Essentially like one soliciting for prostitution. Angry citizens retaliated with the manufacture, selling, and using of chamber pots, and for their urinary target, an image of Benjamin Butler. Quite honestly, Porter and Butler were a perfect mismatch. They truly disliked one another, so much so that they communicated only through intermediaries, which did not make their difficult task any easier. For the reduction or capture of Fort Fisher, Ben Butler introduced a plan. Always attracted to novel schemes, he was fascinated by accounts of two ship explosions. One was a British canal boat that blew up with 75 tons of black powder in her hold. And more recently, a U.S. ordnance boat that had exploded east of Richmond at Grant's massive supply depot in Virginia at City Point. Both blasts destroyed buildings in near vicinity and claimed lives. Using those two occurrences as a foundation, Butler believed that an old ship filled with explosives and detonated at the foot of Fort Fisher might have a similar effect. In the very least, level a portion of the fort's earthen walls, which would allow a land force to make a successful assault. Incredibly, Porter admitted that Butler's idea was an experiment at least worth trying. 
So, an ancient flat-bottomed wreck, the 295-ton Louisiana, was filled with 215 tons of powder and assorted combustibles. It would be towed underneath the nose of Fort Fisher, and after detonation, give the federal cause impetus for victory. And so, the great expedition was made ready. A chief engineer from the Army offered his two cents on the so-called powder boat. He said its explosion would have about the same effect on the fort that firing feathers from muskets would. And though Porter may have thought the idea was worth a shot, U.S. Grant was not impressed or enthused. When the rear admiral learned of Grant's skepticism, Porter offered this about the man he had worked with during the Vicksburg campaign. On Grant, Porter remarked, I am not one of those who considers him to be the military genius of the age. No matter, on Tuesday, December the 13th, 1864, just off Hampton Roads, Virginia, 56 warships and just under 100 support vessels gathered. Porter amassed 619 guns, 14 times Fisher's heavy gun total. Two days later, Butler and his army transports arrived off New Inlet just south of Fort Fisher. The weather was perfect for a landing, but there was a problem. For whatever reason, Porter's flotilla was nowhere to be found. Three days passed, and then the weather turned. A nor'easter forced the less buoyant army transports to move 75 miles north to the safety of Beaufort, North Carolina. Five days later, when the sea was smooth once again, Butler sent word to Porter that he would return to the planned rendezvous point the next night, Christmas Eve. This time, Porter's fleet arrived, but Butler's force did not. That's when coordination and cooperation soured. Perhaps anxious to grab glory, Porter decided not to wait for Butler and go ahead with the powder boat's detonation. So the night before Butler was due to arrive, Porter ordered the USS Wilderness to tow the Louisiana some 500 to 1,600 yards from the beach, just north of Fort Fisher's northeast bastion. The plan slipped into gear around 10.30 that evening. In the Bible-like blackness of the night, the two ships made their way without lights and arrived undetected. Crewmen rode to the Louisiana and set clockwork detonations to go off at 1.20 a.m. For backup, they also lit a pine fire in a stack of wood in the after cabin. After doing so, they with great urgency rode back to the wilderness. Porter, expecting a cataclysmic explosion, ordered his entire fleet to stand 12 miles offshore. From that distance, he and all on that 45-degree night peered toward the shore in breathless anticipation. 120 came and went. Nothing. The detonators had failed. The wood fire would have to do the trick. At 1.46 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning, it did. The Louisiana went up, but rather than a stupendous end-of-the-world roar, there was a politely discreet rumble. 
Unbeknownst to Porter, about 80% of the powder was bad and failed to detonate. Yes, there was an impressive tongue of flame that went skyward, but it quickly turned into a black cloud of smoke and dust and drifted with the wind out to sea. Though tremors were slightly felt inside Fort Fisher, the Confederate bastion defiantly remained. One Union officer captured perfectly what every member of Porter's fleet must have been thinking when from the deck of one ship he mused aloud, There's a fizzle, and then went below to go to sleep. Though the explosion was a colossal failure, an unfazed Porter decided to go on with the naval attack. By 11.30 a.m. on sunny Christmas Eve, he had his fleet deployed in a semicircle along the fort's sea face, and one hour and 15 minutes later, he opened fire. From ships that stretched one mile in length, he let Fort Fisher have everything he had. For the next five hours, some 10,000 rounds were fired. Porter believed the damage his flotilla inflicted was horrendous, yet in reality, only two of the stronghold's guns had been knocked off their carriages, and for all the thrown lead, only 25 Confederate casualties. Conversely, during Porter's bombardment, he suffered some 37 Federal casualties when five artillery pieces blew up. One hour later, Butler arrived just off Confederate Point with a few transports and nonchalantly explained to Porter that the rest of his force would arrive the next day. And so, at 10.48 in the morning of Christmas Day, Porter opened up again to cover the landing of Butler's troops. Three hours later, some 2,500 landed just north of Fort Fisher. Safely ashore, they moved south toward the fort's land face, but found that despite Porter's shelling, when Federal troops got within 150 yards of the land face, they were peppered by Confederate artillery and musket fire. In fact, none of the 17 cannon on the fort's land face had been knocked out, manned by gun crews which during Porter's fire had hunkered down in bomb-proofs. Incredibly, a few Union soldiers got within 75 yards, but that was about time that more bad news arrived. A captured Confederate picket informed Federal officers that some 6,000 Confederate reinforcements under Brigadier General Robert F. Hoke had just arrived some six miles up the Cape Fear and would soon move into the Union rear. That piece of information and word of an imposing, approaching storm stopped the Union assault in its tracks. At 6 p.m., and acting on Butler's orders, the land force retreated north back up the beach. Butler then signaled Porter that his land force would return all the way back to Hampton Roads, Virginia. In his hurry to get back, about 700 men, most of them New Yorkers, were not only left behind, but left on the beach in enemy territory without supplies, and there they would have to spend a most uncertain night. All during December 26th and into the morning of the 27th, Porter did his best to provide artillery cover for the marooned Union soldiers. Ashore, their commander, Colonel Newton Martin Curtis, was livid. He was not the only one who was angry. Porter was furious. And the clincher? 
After over 20,000 shells had been thrown at Fort Fisher on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and by the way, the heaviest bombardment of the war, Fort Fisher was still intact. Ben Butler was not the only officer who disappointed. On the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg, in charge of Confederate operations there, allowed a Union force to land unopposed, and in the face of Porter's bombardment, did little to aid the defenders of Fort Fisher. Now, returning to those in blue, Porter gradually, so as not to give the impression of repulse, ordered his fleet back to Beaufort, North Carolina, where he refitted, took on more ammunition, and fired verbal shots at Butler. To Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, he wrote, If this temporary failure succeeds in sending General Butler into private life, it is not to be regretted. Someone else agreed. Lieutenant General U.S. Grant, who wrote the expedition, had been a gross and culpable failure. He wired Porter to stay put and vowed there would be another expedition, but under a new Army commander. Indeed, Ben Butler was ordered to report home to Massachusetts. Back on Confederate Point, Fort Fisher had taken 20,271 shells, more than one million pounds of iron, and suffered only six dead, 55 wounded, and the disabling or destruction of four artillery pieces. Fort Fisher was still the menacing Gibraltar of the Confederacy. Yet the fort's durability had a downside. Bragg believed the fort impregnable and so declined to send more ammunition. He disbanded junior and senior reserves and made plans to reassign hoax men who had been expressly sent to serve as reinforcements. In the Federal's first expedition, hoax men, the approach of a storm, and Union incompetence spared Fort Fisher. And it was a jubilant Colonel Lamb who, after the Federal threat was turned away, wired Richmond. This morning, December the 27th, the foiled and frightened enemy left our shore. His jubilation, however, was short-lived. Oh, one more word about Ben Butler. Catching the lion's share of blame for the failed expedition, a medal was soon thereafter created. It featured a general's insignia and running legs. On phase, Butler, of course, blamed Porter and the Navy. And rather than report to Massachusetts to await further orders, Butler went straight to Washington City to seek political allies. When Grant learned where Butler was, the lieutenant general acted decisively. For violating his orders, Grant, on Wednesday, January the 4th, 1865, canned him. Replacing him for the second expedition, Grant appointed Brigadier General Alfred Howe Terry. On the 8th of 1865, he and some eight to 9,000 federal troops departed from Bermuda 100 on the James River and headed south. The 37-year-old Terry was a bright star on the military horizon. He had been born in Connecticut. One of ten children, he attended Yale, where he trained to become a lawyer. A Renaissance man, he played the flute, sang bass, and was one of those rare volunteer officers who, by innate ability, rose through the ranks. 
Upon meeting him, Abraham Lincoln reportedly said, Why have we not seen you before? Terry was a good choice. He understood personal dynamics and worked comfortably with Porter. The two, unlike the first campaign, planned every detail of the second. And that second expedition included 59 ships, 627 guns, 21 transports. Amongst elements of the Federal 24th and 25th Corps, there were nine African-American regiments. All arrived off Confederate Point on Thursday, January 12th. And thanks to Bragg's inactivity and false sense of security, to meet this massive force, Lamb had only seven to 800 defenders. The next day, at 7.19 in the morning on a sunny 45-degree day, Porter's fleet opened fire again. Their fire did spark Confederate activity. Lamb received reinforcements, which brought his number up to about 1,500. One of those who arrived was District Commander Major General Whiting, who, standing before Fort Fisher's youthful commander, said, Lamb, my boy, I come to share your fate. And then he added, You and your garrison are to be sacrificed. Whiting was spot on, for at 8.45 a.m., when the Federal landing took place north of the fort, it was unopposed. Bragg had done nothing. Indeed, in his own world, that day, with a massive federal expedition bearing down on Fort Fisher, he planned a parade in Wilmington and required hoax men, which might have opposed the federal landing. From the federal perspective, in contrast to Porter's wild and random bombardment during the first attack in December, this time his fire was concentrated. Directed on land defenses by enfilade and direct fire, each squadron of the fleet was assigned a bombardment station, and each had a specific target. Their fire was so intense that Lamb and his men were hard-pressed to return fire. Lamb wrote, All day and night on the 13th and 14th of January, the Navy continued its ceaseless torment. It was impossible to repair damages at night on the land face. We could scarcely gather up and bury our dead without fresh casualties. At least 200 have been killed and wounded in the two days since the fight began. Only three or four of my land guns were of any service. The fire was so heavy that finally Bragg responded to pleas for reinforcements, but only 350 of the 1,100 troops dispatched actually reached the fort. Meanwhile, Terry, whose force had landed some five miles north of the fort, ordered the digging of defensive works to keep Confederate reinforcements from arriving out of the north. Unknown to Terry, Bragg paralyzed efforts to relieve Fort Fisher when he ordered Hoke not to attack unless attacked. Later, Bragg changed his mind, but fearing a Confederate attack would draw fire from Porter's fleet, he canceled the order. In other words, a defensive Union position stood guard while a Confederate force before it was on the defensive as well. The result of Bragg's decision-making? Some 1,500 men inside Fort Fisher had to beat back some 9,000 in blue. On the morning of the 14th, a Saturday, Terry personally led a probe on the land face and got within 700 yards. 
He decided on a full-scale attack the next day. That evening, he met with Porter, and the two planned the military ballet. 3,300 men would make the attack under the command of 29-year-old Brigadier General Adalbert Ames. Porter, anxious that the Navy be represented, also ordered a force of 1,600 sailors and 400 Marines to simultaneously charge the fort at the so-called Crescent Battery, where the land and sea faces met. That force would advance in three columns. They hoped to ascend the fort's steep parapet and engage the enemy hand-to-hand with cutlasses and revolvers, while Ames' infantry struck the land face. His men got ashore, and with most of the Confederate defenders in bomb-proofs to escape Porter's naval bombardment, those men who landed dug protective rifle pits. The plan? They would charge the next day when the naval guns fell silent around 2 p.m. Sunday, January 15th, dawned sunny and clear. Temperatures reached 50 degrees. At 7.16 a.m., Porter opened up all along his line. Whiting and Lamb inside the fort immediately recognized it for what it was, the thunder before an imminent federal storm. An alarmed Whiting bombarded Bragg, still in Wilmington, with telegrams for reinforcements. So many were sent, and the tone so urgent that it angered Bragg, and he ordered Whiting to report to him in person the next day. Bragg became so disgusted with what he perceived as panic that he ordered Brigadier General Alfred H. Colquitt to land from the Cape Fear and take command. Somewhere around three in the afternoon, the Navy ended their fire, and 25 minutes later, the combined naval and marine force was ordered to charge. They rose to their feet and attacked, but not in the planned three columns, but a snarled mess. Confederate riflemen could not miss, and Lamb added to the defense of the fort's northeastern salient when he ordered up all the small artillery he could find. As one Union officer remembered, They were packed like sheep in a pen, while the enemy were crowding the ramparts not 40 yards away and shooting into them as fast as they could fire. Completely overmatched for this type of work, sailors and marines turned and fled, leaving 300 of their own dead or wounded. Confederate defenders put up a cheer, but it was then that Lamb caught sight of three Union flags fluttering from the western salient of the fort's land face. Ames' men had gained a footing on the other end of the land face. Though Ames' attack was delayed, it had proved to be a silver lining. With Confederate attention riveted on the attack that stormed the northeast bastion, Ames' infantry advanced without drawing Confederate fire. With sun glinting off polished bayonets, And with the underground mines inoperable due to exposure and rust, federal infantrymen swarmed through the fort's wooden palisades, scaled the parapet, and overwhelmed the 250 Confederates who desperately tried to defend. It was Colonel Newton Martin Curtis's 1st Brigade that went in first. They struck the least defended part of the Confederate fort, and with two brigades right behind, men in blue swarmed past and through Shepard's battery and into the Confederate emplacements, but they did so with great expense. 
A round of Confederate canister cut down the entire color guard of the 97th Pennsylvania. All three Union Brigade commanders went down, Colonel Curtis and Colonel Galusha Pennypacker, an officer so young he could not vote, both severely wounded. Colonel Lewis Bell was mortally wounded, yet the blue waves came on. The fighting was hand-to-hand, from one gun emplacement to the next. With the Confederate crises mounting, Whiting rushed some 500 to the scene. Federals demanded Whiting to surrender, and when he refused, he went down with two wounds. Colonel Lamb rounded up walking wounded from the fort's improvised hospital and then confronted Bell's Federals. When he did, he too fell with a severe wound to his left hip. For the Confederates, chaos ruled. To the south, Battery Buchanan opened fire, but inflicted not only Federal casualties, but to their own. It didn't help matters that several Confederate officers there were drunk. Bragg, finally sensing that Fort Fisher was indeed in dire straits, ordered Confederate reinforcements under hoax men to attack south from their position. But when they did so, Porter's fleet opened up and Bragg immediately ordered a retreat. Porter's fleet also, under his direct supervision, began to shower Confederate defenders with lead that were just ahead of the advancing Federals as they swept west to east through the interior of the fort. With Whiting and Lamb down, Confederate command fell to the 10th North Carolina's Major James Riley. As he tried to rally defenders, a fourth wave of Union attackers now struck men from the United States Colored Troops. And that did it. After six hours of fighting, the land face was in Union hands, yet Riley led Confederate survivors southward toward the Mound Battery and Battery Buchanan. But much to their horror, they found escape boats and crews gone, and all the guns there spiked. With no chance for reinforcement or escape, Riley knew it was over. At 10 p.m. that Sunday night of the 15th, he walked onto the beach in front of Fort Fisher and held aloft a white flag. To an approaching federal officer, he said curtly, We surrender, and offered his sword. That night, Porter staged a victory celebration. Battle lanterns, calcium lights, magnificent rockets, blue lights, and every description of fireworks lit up the night. Inside the fort, there was also celebration, though the grisly scene there prompted one to write, If hell is what it is said to be, then the interior of Fort Fisher is a fair comparison. The largest amphibious assault in United States history at that time, and surpassed only by D-Day, cost the United States Army 955 casualties, and 383 Navy men and Marines dead or wounded. Confederate losses were put at about 500 killed or wounded, and well over 1,000 of Fort Fisher's defenders taken prisoner. The Civil War's coastal war was over. The Confederacy's last door to the outside world slammed shut. Yet back on the night of the 15th of January, 1865, as the celebration spilled over into the next day, Fort Fisher was not through claiming lives. 
That night, a group of New Yorkers bedded down for the night on a soft, comfortable patch of sod that just happened to be the roof of the fort's main powder magazine. Around dawn, two tipsy sailors carrying torches and looking for trophies entered the magazine. At 7.30 that Monday morning, tons of black powder went up. When the dust settled, 104 Federals lay dead or injured. At 4 p.m. that very same day, the Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, fully aware of Fort Fisher's strategic importance, arrived to see the fallen fort and the destruction therein. With the fall of Fort Fisher, the Confederate chain of forts that dotted the Cape Fear fell like dominoes. And so did Wilmington on February the 22nd, George Washington's birthday. It now became a federal supply depot and jumping off point for Union troops headed inland. Inland, where there would be an intended rendezvous with William Sherman, whose troops were in South Carolina and driving for the old North State. All the federal pieces in this great puzzle called the American Civil War were coming together. And did so with the fall of the Confederacy's Gibraltar, Fort Fisher. After the war, it became a lonely, deserted monster. With each new year, winds off the Atlantic wore down the fort's towering outline. Bomb-proofs caved in, and thickets of undergrowth began to carpet the parapets and plain. In 1881, the United States Army Corps of Engineers closed New Inlet, and by damming it up, the beach off the fort began to wash into the ocean. Twenty-six years later, in 1907, more than 50 federal survivors joined twice their Confederate number in Wilmington and all revisited the site where, 42 years earlier, they battled one another. From that reunion, a movement began to make Fort Fisher a national battlefield. A bill requesting $40,000 to purchase and preserve the land was introduced in Congress. And yet on January the 16th, 1909, a snowstorm blanketed Washington, D.C., and only a handful of veterans could make it to the nation's capital to testify before the House Committee on Military Affairs. The timing was disastrous. Whether it was too many asking for too much at the same time, or the snowstorm that kept more veterans away from testifying, the bill died in committee. They tried again the very next year, but again without success. And so died the campaign. So very sad on so many fronts. For even today, Fort Fisher deserves national military park status. Instead, it became a place for picnics, for campouts, for hikes. Congress neglected the hallowed ground, but Mother Nature did not. Slowly but surely, the fort's walls began to fall into the sea. And conditions accelerated when in 1928 a mining operation began on the beach. Tons of coquina rock were dredged up and used to build a road. With the rock gone, the ocean redoubled its efforts to devour Fort Fisher's beachfront. By the 1930s, the Northeast Bastion, where Confederate defenders drove back sailors and Marines, 
well, it had tumbled into the Atlantic. Various groups called for state and or federal intervention, but little, if anything, was done. With World War II, the federal government bulldozed part of the fort's land face to build an airstrip. Battery Buchanan was raised for building material, and contemporary ammunition bunkers were built along what was left of Fort Fisher's sea face. In 1958, with the centennial of the American Civil War approaching, the state of North Carolina did what the federal government neglected to do some 50 years earlier. Fort Fisher was made a state historic site and a state-supported museum constructed nearby. Efforts were made to stem the erosion, but the Atlantic continued its relentless onslaught. By January of 1965, the Atlantic Ocean accomplished what Ben Butler's powder boat and Porter's massive fleet could not. Most of Fort Fisher, the Confederacy's Gibraltar, was gone, washed into the sea, but not from our memory. And God forbid, not from our history. Perhaps the fall of Fort Fisher made something snap in Richmond. For on Friday, February the 3rd, 1865, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens and two other Confederate emissaries met Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward in the Salon of the River Queen at Hampton Roads just off Fort Monroe. The Confederate representatives proposed peace, but one that insisted on Confederate independence. With the loss of Fort Fisher, ties to the outside world severed, Stevens had few cards, if any, left to play, and Lincoln knew it. There would be no compromised peace. Dark waters were indeed closing over the Confederacy, and the loss of its Gibraltar, Fort Fisher, ensured that Jefferson Davis's government and nation tottered to its destruction. For more information about Fort Fisher and the campaign to capture Wilmington, I highly recommend Chris E. Fondel Jr.'s The Wilmington Campaign, Last Rays of Departing Hope, and Rod Craig's Confederate Goliath, The Battle of Fort Fisher. When we next gather, we'll head to the Western Theater, where Mr. Lincoln's Union won its first major victories of the war, and in the process, found its first hero, a then unlikely officer by the name of Ulysses S. Grant. I hope you'll join us for Thunder on the Rivers Tennessee and Cumberland. Forts Henry and Donaldson. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>